Friends, let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our second reading today comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Let us listen now for God's word to us today. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven, and that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why choose me? This was a question running through my head on the cusp of my senior year in college after John reached out with an invitation for me to consider. Would I be interested in being a Sally Majors intern the following year? The Reverend Dr. John Williams is the chaplain and director of Religious Life 
at Austin College, where I attended school. The Sally Majors interns are a small group of senior leaders who, together with John, plan, coordinate, and lead many of the extensive religious life activities on campus, on and off, including the Activators, capital A, capital C. I did go to Austin College, right? Now, y'all aren't from Texas, so I won't assume you know that the Activators are quite well known among a specific subset of those fitting the description Texas Presbyterian youth and children. The Activator program equips young adults for ministry leadership by entrusting this eclectic and energetic group of college students to lead weekend retreats with youth and children, doing all the things from planning keynotes and Bible discussions to recreation and energizers because we are Presbyterian. At its core, this program is campus ministry with a twist. And it is our baptismal promises in action, nurturing an engaged faith at a time of life that keeps many of those who participate active in membership and leadership in the church for a lifetime. So to be a leader in all of this, to be an intern, was a fairly coveted spot among my peers, all of whom were much more active, frankly, in the program than I had been. So why me? What did they see in me? I'm wondering, I'm guessing that you may have asked this question at one point or another in your life when invited into an opportunity unexpectedly. There are times when we can come up with the answer fairly readily. Experience, expertise, qualifications, hard work. But sometimes we are truly left wondering. And sometimes that wondering feels vulnerable. Did they make a mistake? Is this not what I think it is? Will they change their mind? We hear this as the psalmist marvels before the majesty of God. When she considers the magnificence of creation and asks bluntly in the face of it all, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. Why choose us, God, to be stewards of all of this? To place us in such close proximity to you? I imagine this is a bit of a hushed question. Afraid that to say it too loudly, for God to actually hear it, that might make the creator of all heaven and earth and all things in between realize that they have made a grand mistake, after all. Why me? Why us? Why them? Why bother? These why questions come at rapid pace, particularly when we stand before God, realizing that a call has been extended or an invitation lies into something new, Abraham asked some form of this question, as did Moses. Esther and Samuel both wished that it could have been someone else. Isaiah thought it was a mistake. 
Jeremiah protested that he wasn't quite ready. Mary pondered it, and she needed a discernment partner in her cousin Elizabeth. The woman Jesus met at the well was downright skeptical. Paul was quite literally blinded by it. Peter was sure that he had proved himself unworthy. Yet time and time again, God chooses to be in relationship to one fallible, imperfect, mistake-making human after another. All of us, really. And not just humans, but all of creation. Doggedly, God persists with us. But we humans, we have got to be the most challenging. What with our insistence on certainty and control, our impatience with mystery, our fear-induced raging, and our raging fear, when we are sure that we have it all figured out and settled, it takes nothing less than an act of God to move us. And so, an act of God it often is. It was for Peter, and through him for the community of which he was a part, coming at a time when folks were about as confident as they could have been in the Spirit, when believers were signing on to this community of the way, when baptisms were happening left and right and center, people were sharing their possessions and witnessing to a new way of life, moved by what they had learned about this resurrected Jesus. And having picked himself up from his three times denial by the fireside, Peter took head on the commission given by Jesus before he ascended. Jesus left it in no uncertain terms that they, the apostles, would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Peter preached and debated and traveled and baptized, sure that he, that they had gotten it all right, until... He was unable to ignore the fact that they, that he, had not yet gotten it all right. Not once but twice, one chapter after another, this disruption to Peter's surety is laid out in clear terms. First, in the real time and when it happened to him, and to Cornelius, the one he visited and his household, and then as we read together today, Peter's recounting of step by unbelievable step to his community who is demanding from him an explanation. So the apostle describes it to them clearly, that vision of the sheet that's lowered while he was praying, and on that sheet, everything that no good faithful Jew would ever allow to cross their lips Commanded to eat the first time Peter refuses, rebuking before God what he sees as unclean, profane. And then God's response, what I have made clean, you must not call profane. Three times this happens. What is it with Peter and threes? It is hard to overstate how significant this vision was. 
and the subsequent visit to Cornelius' home, wherein he witnessed the Spirit falling upon and claiming those whom he had been told his entire life were not worthy to be counted among the faithful. The same Spirit, that is, the same Spirit that fell upon he and his friends in the beginning, it was not a lesser one that fell upon this other household, not an only for Gentile spirit, not a separate but equal spirit, not a love the sinner, hate the sin kind of spirit. It was the same spirit full of grace and truth. God was making a point so clear it could not be missed, even by the most hard-headed of humans. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The spirit is not restrained by our stereotypes, not hindered by our need to feel comfortable or in control. What must have crossed Peter's mind when he realized that God was reshaping before his very eyes almost everything that Peter understood the church to be. What he and the community up into that moment considered faithful. Exclusion operates by the same rule of mutuality as welcome, for it harms both the excluded and the excluder, writes Cole Arthur Riley in her book, This Here Flesh, in a chapter exploring belonging, Riley tells the story of being dropped off for her very first ballet class and realizing that she was the only child in the room wearing black ballet shoes in a room full of pink ones. At the time of writing as an adult, although not as a child, she realizes that her actual discomfort stemmed from the fact that she was the only black child in a room full of white ones. Yet as a child, it was all about the shoes. After that class, she begged her stepmom to buy her pink shoes. And even though they could little afford them, she got them. She remembers thinking that these were her salvation, her entry into welcome and acceptance, except they were not nor was her growing skill at dance. Even with this, she remembers clearly the smirking faces and the breaks sitting alone while all the other children gathered on the other side of the room. And interestingly, as she writes about them, she weaves these memories into a lament not of her own experience, but that of her classmates. If you are at the hands of exclusion for long enough, you learn acceptance only at the hands of someone else's exile. You learn belonging as competition, not restoration. It is also the kind of restlessness, is also a kind of restlessness for the energy you expend forbidding others to walk through the door of community is only matched by the energy you expend competing to stay inside yourself. This is maybe more dangerous, she muses, because no one ever perceives the doorkeeper 
as needing an invitation themselves. God witnesses us expending so much useless energy in exclusion and doorkeeping, all the while terrified, though unwilling to admit it, that we may find ourselves one day on the other side of the door. And so God goes up before her people in the wilderness, shepherds them out of exile. Jesus stirs up healing waters and places those who need healing into them, walks through locked doors. The Spirit puts a vision before the church that compels them to get outside of themselves. Why choose us? I think it is. Scripture tells us it is because God's deepest desire is for restoration. It is for us to realize and to act as though we belong to one another and to God and to know that God belongs to us. In the final chapters of the book of Revelation, John of Patmos is given a vision, just as Peter was, of a new heaven and a new earth, a holy city upon which God makes her home amid ours, and God's desire in the end is to be our neighbor, and we, God's. So step by step to this goal, God works methodically choosing us so that we might choose one another. Love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus put it. On the one hand, so that we might not feel the sting of exclusion that creeps into our bones and disfigures our God-given image and belovedness, causing us to question our own being. And on the other hand, so that we have no theological ground to stand upon, to make others question this. No God-given excuse to lean into our most human tendencies to compete for the position of doorkeeper to the divine. Peter and the community of the early church were compelled early on to confront the question of whether or not they would accept the largesse of God that persisted to expand and include before their very eyes. Not content with allowing the church to rest in early success, God knew that they needed the invitation to come along, even and purposefully, at the cost of changing their own notions of faithfulness yet again. God knows that we need the invitation to come along even and most purposefully at the cost of continuing to change our well-set, long-held understandings and practices of faithfulness. Why us? God sees in us the capacity to be good neighbors. This summer, we will spend time reflecting on these why questions, as we talked about with the children earlier, of our faith and our life together and our practice of church, our witness in the community, and our invitation to others. Why does God choose us? Why does the gospel compel us? Why is it that the body of Christ 
relies on the gospel to remake the world? Why do we invite others to be a part of it? And we will, at this time, at the end of each sermon, extend a question for you to consider. So you'll find cards in a basket in your pew, and you are invited to use these, if you would like, as a tool for reflection. We are calling it a personal affirmation of faith because it forms the beginning of our response to scripture and the proclamation of it. So I invite you now to be open to the spirits descending upon you and to consider for a few quiet moments this question. What does it feel like to belong? <laughs>